Well, God's at work in you. He's, he's doing something. And um, maybe it's good that he doesn't tell us. Because um, we might say, well, no, I don't want that. Uh, don't do that with me. Um, but then we can always ask him to tweak our desires so they're what he wants. Thursday night, we're going to, if you want to be here, we're going to be here and we're going to celebrate uh, communion, uh, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, all three in one, um, <laughs> if you'd like to. And uh, the, today what I'm going to talk about will definitely... Um, have Thursday night for its trajectory or its target. Um, just because Passover, which is what the passage is about, and the Lord's Supper coincide. Um, it was at Passover that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And what Passover was to Israel, the Lord's Supper has become to the church. So that takes us to Exodus chapter 12. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. <clears throat> okay, if you know anything about this text and others, um, Rosh Hashanah is not in the springtime. It's in the fall. Rosh Hashanah is the new year for, uh, on the Jewish calendar. So sometimes people say this is the beginning of the religious year for the Jews and Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the secular year. And actually there are several different ways to calculate the beginning of the Jewish year. So we're not even going to bother with that today. <coughs> I mean other than what I just did. So announce to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. Well, that's great, I think. Um, Oh, little family, big lamb. Um, the animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. Isn't this fascinating? Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They're to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens, kale, and, uh, <laughs> in my opinion, uh, <laughs> <phew>. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the old man isn't here today, <laughs> and uh, bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. 
Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. And uh, just this much more. Verse 12. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am Yahweh, the Lord. When I was a child, uh, every once in a while, my dad would uh, put these vinyl LPs on the record player and uh, listen to the music that he loved. And one of his favorites was an album uh, of songs of Tennessee Ernie Ford. <laughs> and uh, I, I was a small at the time, but I remember hearing him singing, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? It's a powerful song. But when I first heard it, I thought, No, I'm only seven years old. <laughs> that happened long before me. You know, what are they talking about? Were you there? when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Of course I wasn't there. But the song means something else than that. I did not understand then that sacred history can alter time. And we learned something about that today. In our journey through Exodus, we've come to the climax of the plagues, the cycle of plagues. This now is the, the big plague. But something odd happens as we come to it. It's like uh, the storyteller puts on the brakes and we're all thrown forward. I mean, we're expecting this big climax, but the main event is overshadowed by a different kind of narration. There's a bit of storytelling, but it's surrounded by all these instructions how to keep the Passover. You see, God has his own ideas about what's important. And we think getting to this last biggest of all plagues is the important thing at this moment. Uh, you know, the suspense is so thick that you can cut it with a knife. But God says, well, no, there's something else. In these first few verses, what was about to happen the event had a meaning. Revelation consists of event plus word. If you just have the event, you don't necessarily know what's being revealed in it. You need the word to explain what's being revealed through the event. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the disciples did not weep tears of joy because their sins were being forgiven and taken away. It's the word that came after the event that enlightened them to the meaning of the event. Where the chapter begins is while the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt. But the narrative doesn't stay there. <clears throat> Even though... Um, Okay, I'll just say that. The narrative doesn't stay there. It's going to move forward in space and time. When we get to verse 25, we read, when you enter the land, because that's 
That's future now. The Lord promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. So what's laid out while they're still in the land of Egypt, they haven't been freed yet, they're still there, um, moves in space and time to the future and to the land where they're supposed to be. It's not the land of Egypt, it's the land of promise. For now, they have not been liberated. Regardless of that fact, God gives them instructions for the future to celebrate their liberation. It's almost like when you're liberated, in years to come, don't forget to do this. It's very important. So this moves them forward. They can now live in the reality of what's about to happen. Uh, this is the first Passover. So this is the first celebration of Passover and liberation. And this can be very effective uh, for us. I just want to slow down because I think this is important. We live according to our reality, our internal belief system. If I believe that a boogeyman lives in my closet and that is reality for me, I'm not ever going to open the closet door. I'm going to nail it shut. Um, I don't believe a boogeyman lives in my closet. I just believe a lot of dusty uh, dust bunnies live in my closet. But that's something else. Um, for that reason, I don't open the door. <laughs> but if I ask God for something, and then I thank him as though he's already given it to me, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm asking for something that, that is in his will, and then I start to thank him, and I can feel that gratitude. The thing I'm asking for has already become my reality. And our brains will believe what we tell them. And if I give thanks with gratitude, I felt gratitude, my body will respond by producing the chemicals and the neural, neural connections of gratitude. And if I do this consistently, it will change my brain so that I live with this more positive grateful state of mind. Whenever I think about the thing that I've asked for, I can express gratitude again. Thank you, God, for hearing me. I know I'll be saved. And you find this in the Psalms a lot, even some Psalms that begin with, how long, O Lord, are you going to leave me in this messed up condition? Uh, they end up by saying, I will yet praise him. And right now, they adopt the attitude of what will be then. From now on, says in verse 2, this will be the first month of the year. Now, this is one of several indicators you'll come across in this chapter that God is doing something new. From now on, it's going to be 
like this. And, and this is wonderful news to them because they've been oppressed slaves. The fact that this is happening in the springtime, of course, this is, this is perfect for travel. Uh, all the wet weather is past. Uh, but springtime is itself nature's beginning of a new year. In previous plagues, the people of Israel were asked to do anything other than keep themselves out of harm's way. God was bringing the plague. Uh, God was an army of one. Now they're, um, they're not automatically protected just because they were Israelites. Before, that was enough. There was darkness throughout Egypt, but light in, in all the homes of Israel. Not anymore. Now God is telling them, you have to participate in this with me. I'm giving you something to do, and, and you must do this. Um, and what God points to in the Passover, it's bigger than the plague event itself. Because it's in this observance that they become mindful of the meaning of God's liberation of their, their people and in becoming mindful of it, embrace the meaning and embrace God who makes it meaningful. <clears throat> this is their salvation. It is a revelation to them and the beginning of a tradition. God creating a nation, God creating a people. And at the heart of its origin and its foundation is his salvation. And, and I want to say that salvation is a very big word. Uh, in the New Testament, the Greek word translated salvation is also translated healing or health, sometimes wholeness. And salva so salvation isn't just, I've been rescued from something, but I'm being taken into something more wonderful, something fuller and richer, something enhanced. And, and I can hear God saying to Israel, now this is in, in my imagination, um, I'm not freeing you merely for the sake of freedom. But I am ransoming you, buying you from your slavery so that you can be mine. And it's, it's going from one master to another. Only it's in service to God they find perfect freedom. Apart from that, they're only going to know oppression. So he gives them instructions about how to protect themselves and uh, also how to apply uh, the ritual. And it includes selecting a lamb or a goat, killing it at twilight, just note, make a note of twilight, applying the blood to the side and top of their doorway, and no, I don't think it's significant that if you draw a line from where they applied the blood, it forms a cross. But maybe. Um, preparing the meal. It's interesting how, how that 
precedes. Uh, what to wear. You don't dress up for this meal. You wear traveling clothes. Uh, I guess sweats and a t-shirt. And, um, and what will happen in verse 12? God will pass through the land and the firstborn of all the Egyptians will die. Firstborn male. Okay, two thoughts about this before moving on. Victor Turner, I have no idea who he was, is, um, wrote about rites of passage and uh, rites of passage has three parts, a separation from where you were in the community, a liminal period, and then an incorporation into a different status in the community. So through this transition, the liminal period, the rite of pass passage causes a change. You become something else. You were an adolescent, you had your bar mitzvah, now you're an adult. Liminal comes from the Latin, which means threshold. A transition occurs in the threshold from the old to the new. This Passover is a rite of passage. It is a liminal space for Israel, and it is a space between two worlds. It's in that space between two worlds that we meet God. And doesn't that make sense? Um, twilight, space between daytime and nighttime. It's not day, it's not night, it's both, but neither. It's mystical space, it's liminal space. It's, it's a, something's changing, it's not gonna stay as it was a few minutes ago, it's gonna become something else. Same with sunrise. And every day, in the morning and in the evening, Israel was told to offer sacrifice to God and worship him, to respect those liminal spaces. A doorway is also liminal, so you have Liminal time and liminal place. At twilight, you kill the lamb and you put some of its blood on the doorpost and lintel of the doorway. So that God is inviting his people to be with him. Later on, in the book of Exodus, uh, God is going to meet with Moses at the entrance of the tent. In fact, that's where they're going to set the altar, right at the entrance. Whenever God speaks to Moses, Moses will stand at the entrance and will be told that as he went to meet with God at the tent of meeting and stood at the entrance, that the cloud that led them by day hovered over the entrance and that the people stood at the entrances of their tent, sometimes bowing down until Moses was finished and came back. They all observed liminal space because that's where we meet with God. That's why there are mezuzahs on the doorway of many Jewish homes um, with uh, commandments from Deuteronomy written and placed in them. And sometimes you'll see a person entering their home or, or even uh, a room in a hotel in Israel. They'll kiss their fingers and touch the mezuzah and 
recognize that liminal space <coughs> as they enter uh, their living quarters. The other thought I want to linger with for a while is the lamb, the death of the lamb. The lamb becomes food for the household. It feeds the family. Uh, this is my body broken for you. Um, more importantly, its blood saves and protects the family. Blood is considered sacred in the scriptures. And God will tell Israel, don't ever eat the blood. You, you butcher an animal, you bleed it completely. You don't eat anything strangled. Um, and that's because blood is too holy to eat. It's not, it's not for any uh, hygiene or medical reasons, uh, though that's where our minds would go, but it's too holy, so you don't consume it. Blood has a voice in Scripture. Uh, God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And if someone is murdered in, uh, let's say, a county, one of the territories of one of the tribes of Israel, and no one knows who did it, they have to go to that place where they find the body and offer a sacrifice to atone for the blood guilt that's there because it still speaks and, and cries out for justice. And they have to resolve that somehow. Blood has a voice in scripture, and the blood on their doorposts and lentils said, a death has already occurred in this home. A ransom has been paid. These people are safe. In verses 14 through 20, there's one other addition to their, their meal. It is unleavened bread. And unleavened bread means bread that has not had yeast mixed into the dough so it doesn't rise. In fact, flat bread would probably be a better translation because there's nothing negative in the Hebrew here. Nothing that says un uh, or non. Um, it's just this is your, your flat bread and they know it's made without leaven or yeast. Um, the Old Testament professor, uh, Valdemir Jansen, said, to eat unleavened bread is undoubtedly also a sign of a new beginning. Leaven is a portion of a previously prepared batch of dough left to ferment so that it can be used in a new batch of dough as the fermenting agent that will make the dough rise. Thus it became a symbol of carrying the past over into the future. This past dough provides the yeast to ferment this new. So we're bringing the old into the new. And if you really want to be fully new, you don't bring the old into the new. You start with unleavened bread. And that becomes then, that provides then the, the yeast for the next batch of dough. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, get rid of the old yeast. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old yeast of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread without yeast, 
of sincerity and truth. And then when I think of Jesus telling his disciples, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, I hear something different. I hear him saying, beware of that old religion. Beware of, of that old style of Phariseeism and legalism and, and missing the point. Start new. Start without that. Oh, man. You don't know. Well, maybe you, some of you do because you've got backgrounds like my own. You don't know how much I spare you old school Christianity. Um, I, I really want you to live with a greater freedom than is permitted me by my, my programming from the past. You, you've heard the story about the elephant. Um, how, how come this huge elephant stays by the stake when it could easily walk away and just pull the stake up? And the answer is, when it's a baby elephant, they drive the stake into the ground, chain the elephant to it, and he can't escape. So he just comes to believe he can never escape. So even when he's huge and weighs a ton and can easily pull up the stake, he doesn't because he doesn't know he can. Okay, that's me. <laughs> you are the elephants that never got staked to the ground because I refuse to drive that stake into the ground for you. Um, it's not necessary. Get rid of the old stuff. You don't have to start with all the mistakes of the past. Um, all the sins of the past, there is the essence of what is true grain. It's not chaff. It's not yeast. It comes from the scripture, and it's always been preserved in Christian lives who have not followed that wrong road. Okay, so anyway, consider yourselves blessed. Um, good. Verses 17 through 20 uh, repeats the previous uh, verses. And then in verses 21 through 27, Moses passes on these instructions to the elders and the people. He, and when he does, he adds a word about staying inside. He said, no one may go out the door of that house where the blood has been. But once it's on, on, you have to stay in all night. No one's to go out. And again, the door is a place of encounter. It's where they encountered God. Um, but also, do you remember God told Cain, check your attitude, Cain, and your actions. If you do what's right, you'll be accepted. Your worship will be cool. But if you don't, sin is crouching at the door. So here's this beast at the door and if you open it it's going to come in you're going to be devoured don't open that that door there's safety inside danger outside this is again this this is really helpful especially if you can always find that place of safety inside i promise you you can't always find it outside Does your blood pressure go up every time your blood pressure is taken? I mean, does that happen to anybody? You feel that pressure on your arm, you go, oh, that's too tight. They're making a mistake. That machine is killing me. It's, it's going to choke me to death. Um, have you ever had that? Um, 
Okay, maybe you don't have my phobias, but um, <laughs> let me bless you with them. Um, <coughs> as soon as you check my heart rate, I know my heart's beating faster. It's like you're never going to get a, a, the real deal. Unless I can find that safety inside. There's safety inside. Um, Noah and the ark. God gave him instructions for building a door in the ark. And when it started to rain, God ushered them all inside and says, and Yahweh closed the door. He, he closed them into that place of safety. So they're safe as long as they stay indoors. And then he, ha- he also adds a word about the next generation. Uh, in verse 26, he says that you're going to, uh, your children are going to ask, why do we have to keep this funny meal every year? In fact, if you read the Seder uh, uh, script, that many Jewish families will be going through uh, come Passover. Um, the children ask questions like, how come we normally eat vegetables that taste good, but for Passover we have to eat these bitter vegetables? And um, God says, this is opportunity to educate the next generation. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to share with you this tradition. And the intention wasn't to enhance their culture or religion by having this wonderful tradition. It's all about the meaning of the ritual. Keep the meaning alive. Don't let this become a dead thing. As long as the meaning is there, everything that goes on in the meal will have significance for everyone there. And they can embrace it and, and uh, let it become a part of them, let it form their thoughts, their feelings, their attitudes, their character, form the person that they are. Let all these things happen by giving the meaning. The ritual is sacred, it's powerful, it's meaningful. You, you, we can't make it without it. But only if we are there with it in the meaning. By, by nature, children are driven to learn. Oh, not my kid. Well, yeah, your kid too. Um, did you ever get annoyed with how many times he or she could ask Why? And, and ask why in response to every answer you give. Why do birds fly? Well, because um, that can be protection if there's a predator on the ground. Why? Well, because predators on the ground will kill birds and eat them. Why? Well, we, predators have to eat. Why? Well, they have to live. Why? Why do predators have to live? Why can't the prey live? Um, okay, so on and on it goes. Uh, their curiosity runs nonstop, everywhere and about everything. Young minds are curious and playful. Old minds are jaded and grim. So. Make your decision. <laughs> I want to have a young mind. I'm going to stay curious. 
Curiosity can be excellent for mental and spiritual health. And it's advised by many clinicians, many well-educated clinicians. The Israelites were told to exploit their child's drive to learn and to respond to their curiosity. Do these things that evoke their questions and give them meaningful answers so this can belong to them as well. After Moses gives all this information to the crowd, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshipped in verse 27. Immediately there's acceptance, there's surrender, there's compliance. Um, they did not wait till they got home to obey. They responded immediately and then went home to obey. Then finally, in verse 28, the final plague hits. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock were killed. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people of Egypt woke up during the night, and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. For all the buildup and carnage and dreadful cries of the Egyptians, the whole thing is told in simply two verses. That's it. You just got to the climax of the plagues. Blink and you missed it. This is because the focus is no longer on Pharaoh. Up until now, it's all about Pharaoh hardening his heart and saying, no, I will not let you go. But he no longer has any power over them. Israel not, is now safe in God's embrace. And so Pharaoh sent them out. Verse 31, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you said and be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave. <clears throat> he ordered them to take he ordered them to take everything he had haggled over before. Remember him saying, "Well, who's going exactly?" And Moses said, "We're all going." And he said, "Well, no, you're your adult males can go. Your wives and women and children have to stay. And Moses said, it won't work. Then uh, Pharaoh said, okay, you can go, all of you, but leave your livestock here. And again, Moses said, won't work. All the stuff he haggled over, he now orders them, take it. Take your, your little ones, take your livestock, and so on. In fact, uh, the Hebrew text in verses 31 and, and 32 have... Um, a word that is used four times. It's the word also. And it's not translated here, but it looks like this. You and the rest also go. Also your flocks. Also your herds. And bless me also. Now, that bless me also may be sarcastic. I mean, there's several ways to read it. And, and, and bless me, too. Like I don't really mean it. If you can't tell I'm being sar sarcastic, I don't really mean what I'm saying. Um, or it could be that 
he's saying, when you go, I will be blessed. That will be my blessing. You'll be gone. Or he, he could say, and when you get to this place where you're going to worship, make sure to bless me too. I mean, the first time, or the first Pharaoh we encounter in Scripture, when Jacob meets Pharaoh, the first thing Jacob does is bless him. In fact, it looks like he gives him a blessing when he meets him and a blessing uh, when he's done speaking with him. So Pharaoh says, bless me. Who knows what he means by that? In verse 37, their journey begins. That night, the people of Israel left Ramesses and started for Sakoth. There were about 600,000 men plus women and the children. Oh, 600,000. That sounds like a lot. And if you tally it all up with women and children, that's maybe close to 2 million people. That does not sound feasible, and it doesn't sound... Um, of course, nothing is feasible in this story. Uh, it's all miracle. But there are a lot of questions whether there are really that many people. And I don't think that we understand either history or the use of numbers the way Israel did. History was flexible. You could tell a story in any order that you wanted to. You didn't have to follow a strict timeline because it's more about the content and how it's developed than getting all the details located in the right year or month or day or century. And the same thing with numbers. Um, sometimes my grandkids, when they're small, will say, oh, there was like a zillion of them. I don't think zillion's a number, but to them, they're, they're reaching for something astronomical greater than any number that they can even think of. And that's what 600,000 is. It's just this astronomical number. And uh, remember, these people have proliferated throughout the land. And there's just so many of them now that you just go for a really high number, even if it seems ludicrous. The point is um, you have to exaggerate to, to give the sense of how many people are actually there. Lots of people, yeah, yeah, yeah. More than I'd want to try to lead through the desert. You know, my dad was a great leader, um, uh, especially when he'd take people on tours to Israel or to Greece or whatever. One time, um, he was in Italy, and he, he, he just announced, and he didn't make a big announcement, just some people were standing around him, and I think he was mostly telling my little sister, I'm going to go see the trivia fountain. So he takes off, and this crowd of people are following him. And he's, he's sure he knows where he's going. And he walks and walks, and it starts to rain, and he walks and walks, and finally tells uh, my sister, I'm going back to the hotel. I think I'm lost. So he gets back to the hotel, and upon arriving back at the hotel, they found out that the famous fountains were right behind the hotel. <laughs> the whole time. And when my dad learned that, he said, oh. <laughs> Can't do that. Okay, so the journey begins. It begins in, in Ramesses and takes them to Sukkoth. Ramesses was in the first chapter in verse 11. The people of Israel were being forced to build cities in Ramesses to be storehouses for Pharaoh. 
that Ramesses, they're building storehouses, they're building buildings for Pharaoh. Sukkoth actually means a temporary shelter. Uh, in Boy Scouts, we learned how to make lean-tos. We would uh, set uh, a log or branch across two standing branches, and then other branches that went down from those slanted down, and we'd cover it with whatever we could find, and uh, most of the other guys' coats. And uh, uh, that was our lean-to. That was our shelter. And Israel lived in shelters for 40 years. And they even then God said, I want you to celebrate the Feast of Shelters, or Feast of Tabernacles, it's sometimes called, um, Sukkoth. So they start in Ramesses where they were building for Pharaoh and they get to Sukkoth where now they're building shelters for themselves. So it's a beautiful transition here as their journey begins. Now what we do, we do for us. We're a free people. Further instructions are given regarding uh, who's eligible to receive uh, Passover. You can share it with other people, but under these conditions. So you, you can read that if you're interested. But the point here is that Israel has an identity now, a, a way to distinguish the Israelite from the non-Israelite, uh, those who belong and those who do not belong. And uh, the event that they're celebrating, this Passover event, is what defines them. It, it's what defines the true Israel, the people saved by God, Yahweh's redeemed people. And here, even more specifically, in verse 40, 40 he is Yahweh of, uh, the Lord of hosts. Hosts, God's hosts, are his armies. And this is pretty flexible in the Old Testament. It can be all of the stars and planets in the sky. That's the Lord's host. It can be all of his angels. Or it can be the armies of Israel, depending on what he wants to use at the time. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. So if you're ever seeing a mighty fortress is our God and you wonder, what's Yahweh, or what Sabaoth means? That's what it means. He's the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, this will be one of Isaiah's favorite terms for God, Yahweh of hosts. And it, just, it reminds us of his power. Um, that these are his people, but they're his army through his empowerment. Uh, again, although up until now, he's been an army of one. All right, I think we've been in chapter 12 of Exodus long enough. Oh, yeah, we have. Um, something weird happens in this chapter. Um, for example, verse 17 combines the past, the present, and the future. The past, I brought your forces out. The present, on this very day, the future, celebrate this day from generation to generation. And it's not just this one occurrence. This is happening all through the chapter. And if you, if you really get a feel of the whole chapter, you're today, you are yesterday, you are tomorrow, and it moves deftly through time in this way. And you don't know where you are except by keeping your eyes on the text. The phrase, this very day, occurs three times, brings us to this very day. Um, the phrase, a law for all time, occurs three times also. Um, also from generation to generation, or 
you and your descendants. It's, th there's all these time references, and they're all mixed up. Everett Fox said, in our text, history becomes present event. The hearer is no longer in the audience, but actually acts out the story. You were there. It is here. And it doesn't matter how we travel in time, the point is the same. That past and future converge on this present moment. The story part of the chapter, just a little short part, is the actual salvation event. Centuries later, a person could ask, has Yahweh saved me? I know he saved my people back then, but I wasn't there. It's not my experience. Has he saved me? So the story takes up very little space, but the rest of the chapter tells later generations how to be there. You have to be there. Um, I read a few years ago that 500,000 people were at Woodstock. A year later, 1.5 million people thought they were there. <laughs> <laughs> may have had to do with the movie, or it may have had to do with what they were smoking at the time. But um, this chapter answers a question. How can later generations experience this important salvation event? For us, the, the question's different slightly. It is when Jesus broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body. When he poured the wine into a cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. How can we be there when he gives them his life in his body and his blood? How can we consume, ingest, assimilate his body and his blood and have that life in us? We weren't there. But in the same way that Israel can be there to the ongoing feast, the ongoing celebration, we can be there. It's what Jesus said. Um, in Exodus 12, verse 14, it begins, this is a day to remember. In scripture, remember does not mean simply to recall some past event, but to bring something that is in the past into the here and now, into awareness. I'm, I'm now conscious of this experience and in bringing it to awareness, it somehow becomes my experience because God fills it with his grace and his spirit. That's the nature of a sacrament. It brings grace and spirit to us so that we experience when we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we experience 
what the disciples experienced. That's what we're going for this Thursday night. We want to be there. Um, okay. To remember is to bring something from the past to life in the present. Memory can be a museum where relics of the past are stored and displayed, or it can be through faith this dynamic energy that creates a time warp. And I can say, I was there when they crucified my Lord. I was there when he rose up from the grave. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. And Paul goes on to say, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Ah, it connects past, present, and future. You're announcing the Lord's death in the past, and drinking of the cup in the present, eating the bread in the present, looking forward to the future when he comes again. And we are with Jesus, the Passover lamb, who with his body and blood feeds us and saves us so that you and I are now in covenant with Jesus together and covenant with one another, identified as a people belonging to him through the grace of God. Would you stand, please? Seven o'clock. Thank you for asking. May the Lord, our God, breathe life into every ritual, whether we pray for traveling mercies when we climb into our car or thank him for food before a meal or take that most holy meal together. The Lord provide us with grace in every ritual to experience him. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.